get started. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Lord, we love your word. We love the Bible. It is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. And Lord, help us not only know the books of the Bible, help us, Lord, to apply the Bible to our lives and live it out, Lord, with our whole hearts. We know there's life in these pages. Lord, we know that this book holds for us the keys to life and eternal life. And we ask, Lord, that you bless our Bible study tonight. Speak to us now, Lord, by your Spirit and through your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I were to come home one night and find my wife sitting on the couch in a romantic negligee? She had farmed out the kids in order to spend a quiet night at home with her husband. But what if I walked in and rather than go and sit down on the couch with my wife, I walked over and I pulled her picture off the mantle. And I started hugging and kissing her picture. All the while that Kathy sat on the couch by herself. You would classify me a certifiable nut. But you see, this is what the Hebrew believers were doing by reverting back to Judaism. They were kissing the shadow. They were hugging the symbols rather than hugging the true Lord of life and the true solution to their salvation. They were acting a little nutty. Chapter 10 begins, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. You see, the Jewish sacrifices were pictures of the ultimate sacrifice that God would offer, His Son, Jesus. They all spoke of Jesus. But why kiss the picture when you can embrace Jesus? The Jewish sacrifices, you see, were insufficient. And verse 2 tells us why. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That the sacrifices had to be repeated year after year, decade after decade, century after century, indicated that those sacrifices were inadequate and could never completely deal with man's sin. As the poet puts it, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience rest or wash away one stain. The blood in bulls and goats whitewashed the sinner. It cleansed him externally. But the blood of bulls and goats were not strong enough to remove the stain of man's sin that was left for the work of Jesus Christ. Now, usually at Christmas time, We read of Joseph and the wise men, or we read of Mary and the shepherds. We don't usually read Hebrews in connection with Christmas. But here in verse 5, we find the most dramatic scene in the Christmas story. Here are the final words of Jesus to the Father just before he leaves his eternal home to occupy his embryonic home. It was said of Jesus, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. 
For centuries, Jesus watched the Father receive sacrifices, but achieved no satisfaction from those sacrifices. You see, the animals were offered, the animals that were offered, they were stained with sin themselves. And the Father knew that only a sinless sacrifice could sanitize a sin-stained life. At the same time, satisfy the heart of a sinless God. But where does God go to find a sinless sacrifice? And that's when the Son stepped up. And that's when Jesus said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. You see, spirit doesn't pierce. It doesn't bruise or bleed. And that's why Jesus needed a body. Jesus was born to die. The next thing you know, Mary had a little lamb, and she named him Jesus. Verse 7 tells us, Then I said, and Jesus is quoting from Psalm 40, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Notice, though, in the volume of the book it is written of me. On every Bible page, buried in every Jewish ritual, seen in every sacrifice, there was a prophetic picture of the work of Jesus Christ. And when the time came to deliver the goods, to literally do the work, it was Jesus who stepped up and was obedient to the will of God. And now that the work has been done, the rituals, the sacrifices, they're no longer needed. We're told in verse 10, He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Today we have a new and better way to God through Jesus Christ. Verses 11 through 14 sort of sum up chapters 9 and 10. He says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see, the Jewish priest ministering in the tabernacle and in the temple, he never sat down. There was furniture in the tabernacle, but there were no chairs. The priest was always on his feet, since under the law the work was never finished. And yet Jesus, we're told here, sat down at the right hand of God. For on the cross, Jesus uttered the words, It is finished. All that needed to be done... For you and I to be right with God was done and paid in full on the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, Now where there is remission, there is no longer an offering for sin. You know, there is no sweeter sound on earth than when a cancer patient hears the word remission. Oh, it's a new lease on life. Suddenly, that person now has a future again, a hope again. And that's what God says about our sin. We're in remission. And thus, we no longer need to be treated. The Jewish sacrifices are now obsolete. They're no longer needed. Jesus is all we need. Verse 19 concludes, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. You see, the biggest blessing that God has given to us in Jesus Christ is access to Him. We now can come boldly to the throne of grace. But with this access, we're given three commands. I call them the salad commands. Because they all begin, let us, let us, let us. 
Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If the door is open, if anyone can go in, then by all means, why don't you enter the presence of God? Why don't you enjoy His presence? Why don't you spend time with your Father in heaven? He loves you. He's beckoning you to come. One of the great catechisms tell us that it's our duty to know God and to enjoy Him forever. Do your duty and enjoy the blessings of God. The second command is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. If we've been given this access to God, let's not depart from it. Let's draw near and let's hold fast. And then thirdly, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, we were told to consider Jesus. But now we're told, in addition, to consider one another. We need to stir up. We need to encourage. We need to support each other. Hey, it's so much easier for us to hang on if we hang out together. Verse 26 is a heavy verse. It says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Now understand, the sin that's being referred to here is not the simple slip up. It's not the foul word. It's not the one beer too many. It's not the lack of patience that we sometimes have with our kids. No, this same sin is the sin that's been referred to throughout the book of Hebrews. This is the sin of deliberately and willfully turning from Jesus Christ and putting your faith back into the institutions, the sacrifices, and the priesthoods of Judaism. This is the sin, in essence, of renouncing your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in another form of salvation. And the writer of Hebrews assures us that since salvation comes by faith, if you stop having faith, then it's impossible for you to really be saved. You see, if you turn your back on God's only provision for sin, which is Jesus, then how can you expect to be forgiven? Verses 28 and 29 point out that there's no mercy for the person who rejects Jesus, who treats His holy blood as a common thing, who insults the Spirit of grace by insisting on the need for our own good works. There's no mercy for such a person who chooses not to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, some of these believers, they had endured persecution. They had suffered financial hardship. Their goods and their possessions had been plundered. But they didn't get bummed out. Their focus was on a better and an enduring possession in heaven, as the writer puts it. And since they had already endured so much, he tells them in verses 35 and 36, Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, For you have need of endurance. In other words, you've had faith in the past. Hold on to your faith. Don't let go of your faith. It's not enough just to have faith. You need to continue in your faith. In John chapter 10 in verse 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them 
out of my hand. And that is so true. No one can snatch you from Jesus' hand. But that doesn't mean you can't get up and walk out. And that was the danger here of these Hebrews. Of getting up and walking out and turning their back on Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton once said, The only way to love anything is to realize it might be lost. I believe people that teach that just because you've embraced Jesus at one point in your past, then there's no possible way that you could ever turn from Him and walk away are not only wrong, they're doing a disservice. They're promoting an apathy and a neglect and a nonchalance. The writer of the book of Hebrews is warning us. He's saying, be vigilant, hold fast to your faith. Verse 38 tells us, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back... My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, literally damnation, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. It's sobering, though. We can draw back to perdition or we can continue in our faith. But just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you no longer have a choice. You do. And you must choose to continue in that faith. At the close of chapter 10... The theme is enduring faith. But you see, faith is something that's better caught than it is taught. And that's why the best way to learn faith is to see it in action. Warren Rearsby writes, The best way for faith to grow is to walk with the faithful. And that's why the author of the book of Hebrews writes chapter 11. He takes us on a walk with faith-filled men and women. He takes us to God's hall of faith. He begins, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, human beings, we're physical creatures and we're largely dependent upon our physical senses. We relate well to things that we can smell and taste and touch and see. But you see, so often spiritual stuff, it slips through our fingers. It lacks the texture that we need to grab it and to hold it and to keep it fast. But you see, it's faith that gives substance to spiritual things. Faith works as a mitt. It's a spiritual glue or grip that we need. It enables us to grab hold of the blessings of God and pull them to our hearts. As Oswald Sanders put it, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. You see, faith is what opens our eyes to the work of God in our lives. You could say faith is the bauble that you put on your fishing line. It's the bauble that sits on top of the water. With our eyes, we can't see what's going on under the surface. But when that bauble goes under the water, you know that you've hooked a fish. And faith is like that bauble. It alerts us to what's going on at the other end of the line that we can't see. But we know it's there. We know it's working. Faith is that bauble that... Ties us to the work of God. Verse 2 says, For by faith the elders obtained a good testimony. This was so important for the Hebrews to hear. Because the Hebrew believers, though they had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, though they had begun to walk by faith, they were being accused by their friends and their family and their rabbis of abandoning their Jewish roots. But here the writer of the book of Hebrews, he assures them that a life of faith is not a departure. Rather, it's a hallmark of their Hebrew heritage. All the great men and women of Hebrew history gained approval from God through faith. 
And he's about to show them different examples. Chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Here's another basic principle of faith. Faith always responds to God on God's own terms. You see, Cain offered God a sacrifice that was convenient, whereas Abel offered God the sacrifice he required. Cain, remember, gave God a fruit basket. Whereas Abel gave to God the sacrifice, the lamb. Cain, you might say, gave God a Frank Sinatra sacrifice. He could later sing, I did it my way. But Abel gave the sacrifice that God required, the blood offering, the true sacrifice for sin. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. One night after dinner, Enoch told the missus he was taking the dog for a walk and the old boy never came back. He was walking so closely to God, God just said, why don't you come right on home? God did a little rapture practice and Enoch spent the night and walked all the way to heaven and continues to today to walk with God. And here's the point the writer intends to make from this chapter. Verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Guys, notice it doesn't say without faith, it's difficult to please God. Or without faith, it's barely possible to please God. He's much more forceful. He says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the indispensable. Faith is the key. And what constitutes true faith? Well, he tells us in verse 6. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Sincere faith believes that God exists, but it also expects that God will bless. It believes that God exists, but it expects that God will bless. That's true faith. It's been said some of us believe that God is almighty and may do all. That God is all wise and can do all. But that God is all love and will do all. There we stop short. Guys, you please God by expecting Him to work and to bless and to be involved in your life. Verse 7 says, By faith Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. By faith Noah built an ark or barge. And he faithfully preached while he was at it a message of impending judgment. Genesis chapter 6 tells us that Noah worked and warned for 120 years. And remember, prior to the flood, it had never rained on the earth. It had never rained. Yet Noah was preparing for a global flood. Imagine the catcalls. Imagine the ridicule he received. Noah provided the cartoonists plenty of material while he was working on his ark. Guys, faith is never popular. Faith hears what other people can't. It's privy to information they lack. Faith is often laughed at, but remember, it was Noah who got the last laugh. Verse 8 tells us, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Honey, pack up, we're moving. But Abe, where are we going? Sarah, when God tells me, I'll tell you. And that was about the gist of the conversation. Noah believed without seeing. But Abraham, he believed without knowing. 
Too many of us, you know, are addicted to details. We're always asking why. God, why? God, where? But real faith doesn't need to know why. It doesn't even need to know where when it knows who. Can you trust God even in the dark places? Always remember, what's over my head is still under God's feet. Can you trust Him even when you can't trace Him? Abraham and his wife Sarah were also promised a child. Abraham was a 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old when she birthed the child. Abraham and Sarah were the only couple in history who paid for the labor and delivery from their Social Security check. (laughs) Verse 12 tells us, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. Now, guys, how would you like that statement made of you? I'm sure that did very little good to help, did very little to help old Abraham's male ego. As good as dead. Not even Viagra could help him. And yet God gave him strength. You know, perhaps tonight God wants to do a miracle in your life. Perhaps he wants to create new life. In your marriage or in your family, a new joy, a new sense of direction or purpose. Perhaps you're tired and weak and weary. You have no strength. Well, if you will expect God to work, if you'll believe that He is and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, well, then there's no telling what God might do in your life tonight through faith. Verse 17 tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Notice God likes to test faith. Did you know that? Have you noticed that in your life? After providing Abraham a son, God told him, offer up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And here he quotes Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. I hope that my faith never gets tested to this extreme. What would you do if God told you to offer up your only son as a sacrifice? We know what Abraham did. He took Isaac to the appointed place. He strapped him to the altar. He raised the knife above his throat. And he prepared himself. To offer Isaac as a sacrifice. How did Abraham bring himself to offer the love of his life to God? Verse 19 gives us insight into the inner workings of this kind of faith. It says of Abraham concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now this Greek word that's translated here concluding. It's the word from which we get our word logarithm. It means to calculate. Abraham is almost mathematical in his deliberations. You know, oftentimes people accuse Christians of having blind faith or faith without reasons, but not so. Faith is very reasonable. Faith just factors God into its calculations. Abraham reasoned out this situation. God had given him a son. Isaac was essential to God's promises. And yet Abraham was certain that God had told him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So he concluded God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead. There had been no resurrection prior to this moment. And yet Abraham figured, he calculated, he reasoned out that God could do it. And on that reasoning, he based his faith. 
And notice the end of verse 19, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Notice, Abraham's knife never fell. But his heart, in his heart, he sacrificed his son. His son to God. And in doing so, God brought him into the deepest possible communion that a man could have with God. For Abraham shared the heart of the father who would 2,000 years later offer his only son, Jesus Christ, on that exact same spot on Mount Moriah just outside of Jerusalem. Amazing. From which he also received him in a figurative sense. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses grew up, remember, in the Egyptian court. The riches of the world were at his fingertips. But we're told that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses saw through the shallowness of worldly things and thrills. He saw in the Hebrews a joy in the midst of their distress, a purpose even in their despair. You know, verse 25, it admits that sin is pleasurable. The pleasures of sin, it says. Sin is pleasurable. Hey, if sin didn't feel good, if sin wasn't pleasurable, it wouldn't be a temptation. But notice what he calls it, the passing pleasures of sin. The problem with sin is that the pleasure is fleeting, It's for a moment, whereas afterwards there's that hollow feeling, that destructive feeling, that terrible, guilty feeling. God's blessing, though, is permanent. And Moses chose to endure some momentary discomfort in order to gain God's permanent blessing. We're told he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he kept the Passover By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And on and on, the writer of Hebrews gives us examples of faith. Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. He even refers to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Elisha, and Elijah. By faith, battles were won. Kingdoms were conquered. Faith never sits back on its haunches. Guys, faith is active, not passive. It's always reaching and stretching and doing something for God. But you see, faith not only accomplishes, faith also endures. It endures suffering when it's called on to do so. And in chapter 11, verse 35, we're told, And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. They could have renounced Christ and escaped death, but instead their eyes were fixed on heaven. Verses 36 and 37 list the terrible sufferings that faith is able to endure. And it said of the people who endured it, of whom this world was not worthy. You see, they were citizens of heaven, loaned to this world only as witnesses. And yet they were never really appreciated by the people they came to to speak to and to shine the light upon. For notice verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Now here's the common denominator with everyone who's been in this list. They all exhibited faith 
without ever receiving the full payment of their promise. They all had to wait. And here's the reason why. Verse 40. And if this doesn't excite you, nothing will. He says, God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The old covenant saints were content with just the promise. But we've been given the fulfillment and the realization of that promise. We can know God today. We can enjoy the blessings that are in Christ. They can only see about it in the future. But we can realize it today. We've been given that promise in the here and now. God has blessed us with a tremendous blessing. How much more should we be willing to have faith? Chapter 12 begins, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. But who are these witnesses that we're surrounded by? Obviously the saints of chapter 11. Now some people misinterpret this verse to mean that people in heaven are looking down on us. They're cheering us on. That the spirit of some dead saint may be looking over your shoulder right now. But not so. Understand, the folks in heaven, they're not worried about us. They're not really focused in on what we're doing day by day. You know why? Because they know that God is in control. They know that our lives are going to work out. They know that our problems are going to be solved. They know that God's going to give us the victory. They're not the least bit worried about us. They see the plan all fulfilled now. They know that God is sovereign, that He's in control, that the victory's already been won. They're at the feet of Jesus, beholding His glories, praising His name. No, the men and women of faith who live before us are witnesses, not because they're witnessing to us now, but because they have left behind a witness to us. The record of their lives, their memories, witness to us that it can be done. If they were able to hold fast to their faith in this fallen world, you and I can too. And since we have their witness, we're told, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, here again, the Christian life is referred to as a foot race. And we're to win this race. But if we're to win it, we need to shed two things. We need to get rid of both weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Have you ever seen a sprinter wearing army boots? Have you ever watched a track star wearing long pants or carrying a backpack? Nope. He gets rid of the excess baggage. He gets rid of anything that might slow him down. You see, weights are not necessarily sin. They're just unnecessary activities that drag us down, that bog us down. They're diversions that distract us from our ultimate goal. Author Ravi Zacharias, he defines a legitimate pleasure as something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from your ultimate goal. I like that. That's a legitimate pleasure, something that refreshes along the journey without distracting us from our ultimate goal. But you see, a weight is just the opposite. It does distract. It gets in the way. It hinders us from our ultimate goal. You know, if you do a lot of traveling, you learn that the enjoyment of a trip is in direct proportion to how lightly you can pack. Have you noticed that? (laughs) And this is also the key to life. 
As Christians, we should always be looking to downsize. Get rid of things that are not necessary. Have you been asking yourself, what commitment, what pastime is sucking up my energies and my resources without directing me toward Jesus Christ and toward others? Where am I investing time without getting back an eternal reward? We should always be asking ourselves those questions. Lord, help me identify the weights in my life and help me get rid of them. But along with the weights, the runner who really wants to win the race, he will also set aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. You see, not everyone is vulnerable to the same temptations. You know, there's a sin that might ensnare you. For me, it might not be anything. For you, it might be a big deal. The vice versa might be true as well. What is the sin that so easily ensnares you? Identify that particular sin that drags you down and poses that temptation. Repent of it. Get rid of it. Move on beyond it. Here's how you walk by faith. You lay aside weights and ensnaring sins, and then you focus on Jesus Christ. Verse 2 tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Chapter 11 is full of wonderful examples of faith, but Jesus is the the ultimate example of enduring faith. Can you imagine? Withstanding the cross, despising the shame, because he knew that upon its completion... He would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he kept his eyes on the joy in front of him, not the pain surrounding him. And guys, this is the key to running the race. Looking unto Jesus. It reminds me of the famous track meet that took place on August the 6th, 1954. The world's two best milers squared off in what was touted at the time as the miracle mile. John Landy and Roger Bannister were neck and neck as the two runners reached the final back stretch. Landy had a small lead, but as they rounded the final turn, the crowd let out an enormous roar. Landy could no longer hear Bannister's foot strike the ground behind him. And at that point, John Landy made a fatal mistake. He turned his head to look back. And as soon as he did... Bannister initiated his kick and sailed past John Landy, eventually losing by five yards to Roger Bannister. You see, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your difficulty, in in the midst of the persecution you are enduring, the worst move that you can make is to look back to the things of this world, to the things you've turned loose of, to follow Christ. You need to keep your eyes squarely on the Lord Jesus. Fix your sights on the joy that will ultimately come if you remain faithful and follow Him. Verse 3 tells us, For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. The Hebrews had been ostracized socially. They had been penalized financially, but no one had yet been brutalized physically. Think of what Jesus endured, he says, and it will put your trial in the proper perspective. You know, sometimes we think we're candidates for martyrdom just because we were snubbed in the break room. Or we weren't invited to the office party. 
We need a reality check. Look at what Jesus suffered. When you've suffered to the shedding of blood, then you'll have something to complain about. Not until. Chapter 12, verse 5 tells us, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You know, there are times when a father has to take his son out to the woodshed. It could be if he talks too much in church on Sunday night. That could be a good reason to take him out to the woodshed. But there are times when every father has to deal with his son and discipline his son. And there are times when God has to discipline His Son and His kids. He has to discipline His disciples. You know, often we interpret our hardships as if God has abandoned us, as if He has forsaken us. But not so. He really loves us. And His discipline is proof of His love for us. Just like my discipline of my son is proof of my love for Him. Likewise, the Father's discipline of us is proof of His love for us. Don't think of God's discipline as punishment. It's really more our education. This Greek word translated chastening is the word padeia, which means to educate. There's a private school in our town called the padeia school. It means to educate. In his paraphrase of chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, Eugene Peterson, he captures this idea. He says, the trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training. The normal experience of children. Look at the last line of verse 11. It notes the purpose of God's discipline in our lives. His chastening yields holiness and the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline is intended to train us, not torture us. God's chastening has four purposes. It corrects. It protects It directs and it perfects. You know, at times God's discipline hammers home a point. (laughs) It corrects a sinful attitude we've been having. At other times it forms a hedge around us and it protects us from some danger. It also directs and often redirects the course of our life. It steers us back sometimes into the will of God. And finally, it perfects our faith. It teaches us patience. And endurance and refines our character. God disciplines us in numerous ways. He'll use a circumstance. He'll use a situation. He'll use a boss at work. He'll use a financial setback or hardship. God has different ways of disciplining us. But when it happens, don't despise His discipline. Don't get upset. Don't get discouraged by it. Yes, discipline is no fun at the time. But God's discipline is proof of His love and it comes with a purpose. He is correcting, He is protecting, He is directing, and He is perfecting. Verse 15 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And again, as we talked about this morning, bitterness is the result of falling short of God's grace. You see, when you're full of grace, when you're full of that love that you don't deserve, you'll want to forgive. You'll want to love others. Grace diffuses bitterness. The last half of Hebrews chapter 12 sums up the entire book, really. The old covenant, which originated on Mount Sinai, has been replaced by the new covenant, which came to us from the mountain in heaven. Jesus, the new covenant, is better than Judaism. 
The Hebrews shook with fear when they came to Mount Sinai to receive the law. The mountain quaked. To touch it meant death. The Hebrews cried out for a mediator. Even Moses was afraid. Mount Sinai, you see, spoke of God's judgment and God's justice, as did the old covenant which came from its cliffs. But we as Christians, we go to a better mountain, Mount Zion, the heavenly mountain. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God. And Jesus himself has become our mediator. Don't go back. Don't lose grip. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. He is better. Verse 27 and 28 speaks of a great shaking that will occur in the last days. God will judge this world and all that can be shaken will be shaken. Only those things which can't be shaken will remain. In other words, man-made stuff will crumble. And that's why you should be smart. You should be quick. Put your trust in things that have been stamped made in heaven. Whatever's been stamped, made on earth, is going to crumble. Chapter 13 begins, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. You never really know. If that stranger at the supermarket, or that stranded motorist, or that guy sitting next to you at the ball game, cheering for the bulldogs, might not be an angel sent from God, incognito, in disguise. You never know. Verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Always remember, sex was God's idea. He created it. And not just for procreation, He created it for pleasure. And it was to protect us and to maximize that pleasure that he restricted sex to a marital lifetime relationship. Sex prior to marriage or fornication, sex outside of marriage or adultery, God will judge. But the marriage bed is undefiled. In other words, anything done between a husband and a wife in their marriage bed, anything done that is a loving act, And a giving act and an agreed-upon act is thus pleasing and acceptable to God. The marriage bed is undefiled. I'm sure you remember Neil Armstrong's words when he set foot on the moon. When he first stepped down on the surface of the moon, he made this statement, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. you remember that? But Neil made some other statements while he was on the moon. Just before he re-entered the lunar module for the last time, Armstrong made a mysterious statement. He said, good luck, Mr. Gorski. And of course, this set off a flurry of activity at the NASA space control. They were determined to decide and to figure out what Armstrong meant. Good luck, Mr. Gorski. Initial speculation was that The comment was intended for some rival Russian cosmonaut, but they looked through the registers and there was no Mr. Gorsky. Despite years of probing, Neil Armstrong never revealed the meaning of his statement until the said Mr. Gorsky died. And that's when Neil felt at liberty to spill the beans. 
You see, as a child, Neil and his brother were playing baseball in the backyard. When the brother hit a ball that rolled up against his neighbor's bedroom window. And there, just outside of the window, Neil heard Mrs. Gorski shouting at her husband, Oh, it's romance you want. You want romance? You'll get romance from me the day the kid next door walks on the moon. (laughs) And thus, Neil Armstrong's comment, Good luck, Mr. Gorski. Well, according to chapter 13, verse 4, I think God also would like to encourage all the Mr. and Mrs. Gorskis out there tonight. Verse 5 tells us not to covet, but to be content. No matter how little else you have, God, you have, you got, you have God's promise. Listen, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's enough to be content with. God will be with you. Remember verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Jesus is always up to something new. The how and the where and the when of his work is always changing. But Jesus' nature, his truth, it never changes. And that's why we're told in verse 9, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. You see, God's truth isn't a moving target. Sound doctrine is the same doctrine taught by Jesus, reiterated by Paul, and recorded in the sacred scriptures. Remember the maxim, if it's true... It's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Notice verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now you see, these Hebrew believers, they were worried because they had been ostracized for Judaism. They could no longer enter the temple. They could no longer make their sacrifices. But he says the people who really have something to worry about are those who are within the temple precincts. And he says in verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. In other words, all these Old Testament sacrifices, they typify Jesus. And here was an important detail. After the animals were sacrificed, their carcasses were taken outside the camp and they were burned. And symbolically speaking, this meant that the ultimate end of sin would occur outside the camp or outside the boundaries of Judaism. And this is why in God's providence, Jesus was crucified north of Jerusalem, just outside the city's walls at a place called Golgotha. He says to these Hebrews, don't worry that you've been pushed outside the camp because that's where it was predestined. That's where it was foretold that you would find the end of sin outside the camp where Jesus has been sacrificed for you. Chapter 12, verse 13 concludes, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That's why he's saying, leave Judaism behind. Renounce your need for these sacrifices in these institutions and rest solely and completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Guys, this is also the prescription for anyone who's entangled in a works-oriented religion. You need to leave the camp. Trust only in Jesus. Lean only on Him. Embrace God's grace. And if a believer in Jesus still wants to make a sacrifice, 
Well, verses 15 and 16 tell him what to do. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. If you still want to offer a sacrifice, make it a sacrifice of praise. Thank him, worship him. Praise the lamb who was slain for you and me. Verse 17 tells us, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. You know, today's church not only needs good leaders. Oh, we do. Trust me. But you know, we also need good followers. A good follower knows that his leader is human. And yet he trusts God to work through his leader. He trusts the leader's wisdom. He embraces his vision as long as the leader is biblical in his teaching and moral in his conduct and ethical in his handling of money and people, it's the duty of a good follower to submit to and to support the leader. It's been said the person who can't lead and won't follow makes a dandy roadblock. And this is the problem in many churches today. Hey, leaders can't lead because the people won't follow. We need both good leaders and good followers. The author of Hebrews closes with a benediction in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. That's my prayer for you tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these chapters in Hebrews, the wonderful lessons that it teaches us. Lord, help us to be men and women of faith because we know, Lord, that without faith, it is impossible to please you. Help us to trust you. Help us, Lord, to have an accomplishing faith. Help us to have an enduring faith. Lord, help us to look to Jesus as we lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, the sin that so easily besets us. Help us lay all that stuff beside and look to Jesus and run this race with endurance. Lord, if we are faithful, if we trust you, the end of our faith contains a glorious reward. No one here tonight, when we make it, when we get to heaven, will ever look back and say, oh, it wasn't worth it. We'll all know that it was worth it. We'll all be so thankful that we held on to our faith, that we trusted in Jesus, that we didn't turn back. Thank you, Lord, for that hope. And thank you that as we get there, you'll never leave us or forsake us. Bless us tonight, Lord. Not because we deserve it. Oh, Lord, we know we don't. But because you're a God of grace. We love you, Lord. We ask that you bless us this week. Work in us and work through us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And if you see DJ tonight, you tell him, man, you did great.